And we're live. <laughs> All right. Start like that. <laughs> Let's get this thing done. <laughs> Let's do this. <laughs> episode two. Uh, all right, episode two. We are going to do the philosophy of philosophy. <laughs> yeah, that's right. We're getting super meta with it <laughs> right out the gate. We're going to define terms. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and just explore what is philosophy and all the branches of philosophy. Um, yeah, which should take actually quite a while. Philosophy gets really complicated. <laughs> yeah, let's go slowly and um, take our time. Make sure we say what we want to say on each of the topics. Yeah. So I guess to start, I mean, let's break down the word philosophy, which is what they typically do to start any Greek philosophy class. <laughs> so philosophy, yeah. Philane is the first part of philosophy, which means lover, and Sophia is the second part, which means wisdom. So that's where we derive the word from. Mm. So it just means lover of wisdom. Yeah, or one of the ways that I like to think about it as an actual two-part word, where you have to have the love and the wisdom. Not necessarily this infatuation with knowing ideas, but use, you know acting out the love as well as acting out the wisdom they're connected right right from the beginning they're connected yeah yeah i think they would agree with that mm. and the greeks had you know kind of knowledge broken down into philos which is science and kind of science related stuff so like the physical view of the world and then mythos which is just storytelling so like you know telling ethical tales through storytelling which is kind of religion more or less or a whole yeah. bunch of other, <laughs> or Aesop's fables, or any story that teaches a moral philosophy. Yeah. And yeah, through both of those, they that's how you acquired knowledge. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, but let's break down, yeah, the six branches of philosophy, which are metaphysics, which is what is real. <laughs> that's, that's what that typically deals with. Uh, epistemology, which is how do we know what is real. Mm-hmm. And then we have value theory, which is divided into ethics, which I think everybody knows what ethics is. It's just how to conduct yourself morally. And then aesthetic philosophy, which is the philosophy of beauty and the study of beauty, which is interesting that that gets its own branch in philosophy, but it does. Mm. (laughs) And then the final, yeah. Well, yeah, political philosophy is another category. And everyone knows what political philosophy is because we argue about that stuff all the time and that's definitely relevant in modern times. And then the final branch of philosophy is logic, which is the toolbox that philosophers use to dissect, yeah, knowledge and facts and look at arguments correctly. (laughs) Mm, Okay. So can we go through those a little more? Yes, we can definitely go through those one by one. What was the first one? (laughs) All right. Metaphysics is definitely the first branch of philosophy. Right which deals with what is real, <laughs> what, what is reality. And it deals with all kinds of concepts like the nature of existence, the nature of space and time, the nature of the soul, mm. um, the study of being in general. <laughs> so how is that different from physics? Um, well, physics actually branched off of metaphysics. So metaphysics started out with Aristotle and Then eventually, I mean, it was just the study of nature. That's how Aristotle initially laid it out. And then, you know, they used that as a way to study nature for, I mean, the better part of 2,000 years 
until about the 1700s when you know modern physics came out and then it branched into modern physics and then we started delineating metaphysics into all the different fields of study basically so it's like metaphysics kind of turned into biology and psychology and and all the other fields of study that we have so it's not a separate thing now no no they've never been separate it always it all stems from itself it's like all the fields of study that we have that are modern fields of study all stem from metaphysical thinking and like from metaphysics yeah, which is, you know, that's like what the Enlightenment was and stuff. And it was like the resurgence of, you know, philosophical thinking from the ancient Greeks or whatever, which like brought us out of the Dark Ages. So <laughs> so it's not metaphysics, <clears throat> metaphysics in the sense that physics is the structure of the universe. So metaphysics is the structure of the structure. It's not like that. I mean, no, not not really. Right. I mean, yeah, metaphysics was just the study of reality in general or just how to look at reality. Basically, what is real? What's so, there? <laughs> so that that distinction still exists? And are there metaphysicists and, and that sort of thing? I mean, yeah, I would say, you know, if you're like a theoretical physicist, you know, you're, you're operating in the spirit of metaphysics, for sure. <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> and, yeah, and, you're trying to come up with some kind of, you know, philosophical view of reality or whatever, and then trying to, like, apply mathematics to it to prove it or whatever. Right. And so, how does that relate to philosophy? I mean, philosophy is at the root of all of it. Mm. I mean, especially with metaphysics, because, you know, what is reality? You have to use that as a premise for every other kind of argument for anything, right? Like, you know, say you're studying biology, you have to, like, fundamentally lay out what your premises are about biology. It's like, okay, we have a heart and lungs and we have cells and we have all these things. And then you can, you know, understand that better. But you can't understand it without the basic premise laid out. And that's kind of what metaphysics did. Right. And a lot of people said metaphysics was dead after it, you know, spawned classical physics because it was like, well, now we can understand nature and reality through the sphere of like science. And so we don't need metaphysics anymore necessarily. Mm. And like a lot of people thought once you branched everything off into all these different fields of study, it was like, well, metaphysics was kind of dead because we can now study nature in like a more precise lens or whatever. Mm. So, but we still need that holistic integration. Yeah, I'd say we definitely do. And then metaphysics has made a resurgence because it's right. like things like string theory and stuff, and mm. you know, like quantum theory. Yep. All this stuff comes from like you know metaphysics type stuff. Even like relativity. And yep. like, yeah. Yeah. So a lot just... of our physics concepts that you know turned out to be true those all stem from like metaphysical philosophical concepts about like the way that reality worked right and then they were trying to prove those assertions about reality right so it's it's in your head to begin with but it can be provable at least hopefully in the real world yeah yeah exactly through you know reason and the scientific method and (laughs) that's a long step which kind of speaks to the ethereal nature of metaphysics yeah yeah i mean it's exploring Plus, it explores a lot of topics that are, like, really difficult to prove or sometimes impossible. But, I mean, after, like, things like physics and psychology and neurology came out, then then people were like, oh, well, you can prove everything materialistically. So it's like, mm-hmm. yeah, metaphysics is dead. Like, eventually, we're just going to, you know, figure out that the soul is this materialistic thing. And, you know, <laughs> right. and then there'll be no point in even asking questions about the soul anymore or, like, you know, consciousness or... Mm. things like that or you know we'll you know we'll nail down reality to the point where it's like we can prove reality or we can prove what happens after death or you know some of these metaphysical concepts we still 
have are metaphysical questions that we have not answered yet right. still exist. So it's like and they're coming metaphysics back. is not dead. <laughs> yeah, it's coming back. Definitely not dead. There's still a bunch of answers that we don't have that science still has like difficulty answering. <laughs> mm-hmm. It's because science isn't the end all be all. And metaphysics kind of proves that. Yeah. Or at least the the need for that framing and that sort of interpretation, that kind of big picture integration. I mean, that's what theoretical physicists, metaphysicians, I guess, if that's even a term. That's, yeah. That's what they're doing. Yeah, definitely. They're They're learning a lot of particulars and then using that to integrate into a new whole... Or, yeah. or elucidate some part of the whole that's already there. Cool. So what's the next one? Um, epistemology, which is how do we know what we know? <laughs> yeah, so it's a study of the system of knowing. Yeah. Your epistemology is your system of knowing. Yeah. So how can we give an example of that? Well, I mean, our current system of knowing now is like the scientific method for sure. So that alone should help kind of prove my hobby horse point that I want to get across here is that uh, the scientific method is just one epistemology out of many. Yeah, it's true. It's like the scientific method can't like, I don't know, prove the crunchiness of an apple or (laughs) I don't know. Or what love is or how consciousness works or if (laughs) there is a soul or, or, you know, one could argue necessarily how to live a good life. Yeah. Or at least to get to that would be very complicated with lots and lots of data and proofs. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> lots and, and lots of studies. Yeah, and epistemology uses a lot of, you know, like evidence, like scientific studies, you know, from the past or whatever is how you come up with an epistemology of something. You're like, okay, we know this about reality because of this. <laughs> mm-hmm. So, yeah, you'll make a metaphysical claim about reality and then you'll back it up with epistemology and be like, okay, this is how we know this thing is true. <laughs> right. This is how we know the knowledge that we have about this topic holds up or whatever. Here's all the scientific studies backing it up. Here's here's all the experience we've had with this thing. And here's the proof. <laughs> kind of. <laughs> right. Well, that is that is our kind of Socratic kind of way, which is a particular epistemology, right? Yeah. And that that evolved into the scientific method. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, the things like, yeah, deductive, inductive, and abductive reasoning. Right. <laughs> so that, we can get to that. So. Yeah, we'll get to that a little bit later. Um, but. So that's, I think for me, that's kind of enough to, because epistemology, you're like, what the heck is that? <laughs> so it's like enough to kind of define it. Yeah, um, just think with epistemology, think how do we know what we know? <laughs> that's what epistemology looks at. <laughs> right, what's, what's that framework that we use to achieve knowledge? Yep, yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's like a it's like a meta superstructure that we all kind of subconsciously just use. Yeah, a paradigm. <laughs> like yeah, it's like yeah. a paradigm that you use to view the world through or whatever. Totally. And and uh, theoretically other cultures and other people could fundamentally have a different epistemology. Oh, absolutely. And they, and, and therefore they would see the world differently. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Like their way of knowing could be totally different. Like mm-hmm. with a lot of Eastern traditions, like their their way of knowing is different. Or with like religious contexts, like their way of knowing is different than mm-hmm. through the scientific method or whatever. So it's like <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> 
that's that's where it gets into like you know realism versus relativism as far as like mm. as far as metaphysics goes what is you, real and what is relative yeah well it's like is there one real view of reality or are there multiple views of reality like is there one objective truth to reality or are there multiple truths to reality mm. so that's definitely like an old ontological question <laughs> Oh, well, that's another term. Is that on the list? Yeah, ontology is a branch of metaphysics, which literally translates to just the study of being. Hmm. So, yeah. (laughs) Just the fact that we're here and all that. Yeah, but it's more like... The nature of being. Yeah. Yeah, it's just studying the nature of being. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So when you look at something ontologically, you're you're studying like the nature of its reality. If I'm not mistaken, Buddhism is a is an ontology. Yeah. It's its own specific thing. Yeah. Yeah, it's its own specific branch of metaphysics. Right. And so there's different ontologies that you can kind of experiment with and, and see what speaks true to you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and, all right, so what's next? All right. <laughs> so, yeah, then we go into value theory which is broken down into ethics and aesthetics and value theory is also known as axiology and i know these terms are crazy and they're (laughs) it's a lot to take in but hopefully we can simplify it but axiology or value theory is just you know us assigning value to concepts so like i said those are broken down into ethics and aesthetic philosophy so with ethics it's like how do we value interpersonal connection it's like how do we value our place in society how do we live a moral life all those things Uh fall under value theory which then you know those would be ethical questions but then value theory as it pertains to like aesthetic philosophy would be like you know how beautiful is this crystal here it's more beautiful than that crystal or (laughs) Mm. you know how you value the beauty of certain things (laughs) okay yeah so so yeah Ethics is pretty straightforward to understand. Um, yeah, which is just, <laughs> what is a value? How do we value things? <laughs> mm, which clearly most of the philosophers were very concerned with Yeah. how to live a good life. I think that's honestly at the root of most of my searching is, is perhaps this subconscious desire for wholeness again. And um, what better way than to understand the way that we think and the way that the world works. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, and then just how to live a moral life and stuff. Yeah, every single philosopher is basically written about ethics and <laughs> And can you can you devise it from whole cloth or do you need help from the past, so to speak? The shoulders of giants, that whole thing. Um yeah, shoulders of giants, probably. Well, the, clearly the philosophers build on who came before them and um, while also trying to critique and push it forward. Yeah, philosophy is the most iterative process ever. It's just like science. Someone will posit something, and then the next philosopher will come along and be like, yeah. you are completely wrong. Right. And then the next it's philosopher will come comical. along and be like, you are completely wrong. And it'll just be counter-argument on top of counter-argument on top of counter-argument until eventually, hopefully, some like truth pops out of there somewhere. Well, it does. <laughs> That's the beautiful thing. I, I remember having this moment when I first started really studying it and reading. I was like, are they just 
arguing for the sake of argument and do they just have like these personal vendettas against each other <laughs> but no it's like that literally is the process that's the hegel's dialectic you know it's just back and forth and and you know you're talking about the true can the true be known and i think it can be through this through this socratic method you know this dialogical method where we present an idea and rip it apart and come up with a new idea over and over and over again yeah yep that's definitely how you advance knowledge that's mm -hmm. why it's important to not be like dogmatic in thinking and to listen to multiple ideas and new ideas and new concepts because it's literally prerequisite for the whole fucking system to work at all. Yeah, for the you advancement of knowledge, you have to question everything. And, like, and like that's the point of philosophy. Question everything. <laughs> or, you know, try to prove yourself wrong in the sense that you take it to its logical conclusion. And if it's, in fact, false, it's going to prove itself wrong. Yeah. Somewhere along the way, and then you go, damn it, now I need to start over. <laughs> but that's, that's epistemological humility, I think, is just like... Just know that you don't know and know that our keyhole to the universe is very narrow and all we're trying to do is widen it. Yeah, and I don't know shit. I will definitely yeah, no, admit most that. Of us, <laughs> most of us don't, but I think there's a big um, fallacy around, you know, f professionalizing philosophy. I think it should be for the everyman and it should be part of our everyday discourse more and more what conversation do you want to have around the water bubbler is it talking trash about nancy and hr or is it talking about the deeper aspects of the universe and how to live a good life and i think philosophy has taken a back seat the humanities in general and it's gotten kind of vilified and frowned upon um but i think like we talked about i think it's it's starting to come back it's a renaissance of philosophy hopefully yeah, I would hope that it's starting to make at least a bit of a resurgence. I it mean, like philosophy it. never went away, though. I mean, yeah, like I was talking about earlier, like once I deep dove into this, it was like, oh, yeah, for any kind of PhD research paper, it's like you're using philosophy, like mm -hmm. a lot of it, as just a prerequisite for <laughs> writing your dissertation. So it's like, right. you know, you have to come up with an ontological view of whatever you're researching or whatever so you need to like state what the re what's real what's going on in reality or whatever and then you need to state how you know what's real which that would be the epistemological view of mm. the world so you need to state both those things when you're writing a research paper and then after that you can come up with a methodology for how you're going to answer whatever question you're seeking and then you come up with the methods for conducting that research so it's like mm. that's like the the hierarchy of how you need to do a college dissertation paper <laughs> yeah but uh or just like you know philosophy in general that's the way that it should be done <laughs> right so and then it advances knowledge because then you've yes, you've taken clearly. a concept and you've gone to like you stated all the assumptions about it and then you're trying to discover something new about it and that's just this is kind of the core of the scientific method as far as like the philosophy of the scientific method yeah <laughs> right which is interesting how they're so deeply connected right from the beginning um and how philosophy is is out of the limelight and i would argue that good philosophy requires both a narrow focus and 
a wide berth of information and perspective. And that is part of the issue with the scientific method is it's really only good at, at narrow focus. Yeah. Um, which allows us to make incredible progress, but it makes it very disjointed and hard to link it. I wonder if that's part of the reason why modern philosophy is not as apparent because technology and progress has made it so complex that it's incredibly hard to associate and to link all this stuff together. Yeah. Well, I think philosophy is more just operating in the background at this point. Because I've gone searching for, like, who are the great modern philosophers. And to a certain extent, you don't know until after the fact, right? But there is kind of this... I'm probably way ignorant and on this, and you guys can rip me apart in the comments, but it seems like there's not as much going on as, say, you know, certainly during the Enlightenment or, like, the early 19th century, you know? Yeah. Kind of similar to, like, classical music. Like, where are the Mozarts and the Bachs? Where are the Nietzsche's and the the Hegel's and the Kant's, you know? Or are they around and we just don't know about them? Well, like I said, I think they they tried to reduce philosophy down to this, like, materialistic view of reality or whatever, where it's just... Oh, it got fractured. Yeah, everything got turned into this, like, straight-up cause-effect, like, like, you know, materialistic, we're made of atoms and cells view of the world. And yeah. I think after that, it, it killed a bunch of different kinds of philosophy because a lot of, you know, philosophy, especially back in the day before we had these scientific discoveries, was, like, trying to make assertions about these things. But then we answered the questions. <laughs> like, you mm. know, they, we they had these fundamental questions about reality, but then they wound yeah. up answering a shitload of them. So it accomplished its goals, which is yeah. like once philosophy accomplishes right. its goals, then it's, I guess it's no longer but useful. But don't you think that's a policy? <laughs> like we can never fully finish philosophy? I mean, because no. of our Because of our narrow keyhole. I mean, I know this whole theory about scientific progress and the fact <laughs> in the 19th century, they were like pretty sure that we've like figured out most of the things about the universe, right? And then, yeah. dun da dun a long time dark energy and dark matter, and it's like, oh, we don't know anything about the universe. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, that's a thing that happened. And then you have to change your entire philosophical lens about physics. Like, right, right. You know, you, you have a, a breakthrough in, well, I guess, what, was that a mathematical breakthrough that led to a philosophical breakthrough, or how did that work out? Uh, did I, the math come first, or did the philosophy know. come first? Either Probably way. <laughs> I think it's kind of, Einstein talks about it more as a philosophical Thing that was born out of all the math that he did. You yeah, know, you and, then the, and then the mathematicians wound up proving it or something? This is what I'm talking about. He didn't realize general relativity in the moment of narrow focus. No, no, no. It comes when you're sleeping or when you're walking in the park it, because that's when your right brain engages and that's when you integrate. Yeah. I know I'm throwing a lot at you. And <laughs> you probably don't know what the hell I'm talking about, but... Um, for the listeners listening, I forgot to kind of preface this conversation by saying a lot of my metaphysics revolves around this dualistic thinking proposed by Ian McGilchrist and the master and his emissary in the hemispheric nature of our brain. And his hypothesis is that we're left brain dominant. And the left brain is very good at this narrow focus but the right brain is what's needed in Einstein's moment of revelation. And I would argue probably most philosophers, great moment, moments of revelation. It's that aha moment, you know, where everything clicks together. And that I do think happens 
when you shift from a narrow focus to a kind of more embodied holistic focus, which is the value to all of these embodied spiritual practices like meditation, yoga, even rock climbing or jumping on your damn trampoline, whatever you got to do to disconnect from the focus and integrate, your physiology is actually kicking in and allowing you to understand. So, anyway. Yeah. <laughs> um, all right, yeah. Let's, let's finish off these branches of philosophy here, I guess. <laughs> um, all right, so we got to ethics. We... Yeah, aesthetic philosophy. That's just the study of beauty, which... Oh, the good, the beautiful, and the true. Yeah, people did write some interesting things about beauty and art, so there is a wealth of literature on that, but we we will do a deep dive into that one later. But the question of what is beautiful is definitely, like, an interesting question. (laughs) That beauty is in the eye of the beholder. Yeah, but, you know, what makes art beautiful, like... Right. Yeah, a lot of that stuff goes into the philosophy of art, too. Mm. which many cultures have put a huge emphasis on. So it's, yeah, it's important. <laughs> it's an important that. philosophical concept. One that, like, I think we probably overlook a lot in the United States, except for, like, yes. on a very visceral, like, Instagram model-type level. Yeah, that's part of it. Uh, but you're right, it's kind of a virtual, pathological way. Yeah, as opposed to it being, like, you know, like, Bali or whatever, where it's, there's just, like, art everywhere as part of mm. their, like, religious practice. Or because, Europe. like, they take the aesthetic, like, it's ingrained in their philosophy, so. Yeah. So, yeah. I think aesthetics have taken a major backseat. Yeah. Our architecture is a perfect example of that, this brutalism architecture we have. Yeah, it's Nothing, very few buildings, modern buildings in the U.S. are beautiful, except for key noticeable you know, churches and stuff like that. But um, beauty is terrifying. I, I think it's people are scared of beauty because it calls to a deeper part of you and it calls you to really try to manifest something beautiful. And I think artists and musicians deal with this every day, um, this kind of fear around how do I do that, knowing that it has to be done, and then you do it. And again, I think you're you're tapping into this more big picture, intuitive pattern recognition, right? I think philosophy, yeah. philosophy and art are similar in that sense. It's pattern recognition. Yeah. yeah. You get, I think of philosophy as one of the humanities, one of the arts, perhaps distinctively separate from STEM, you know, from more of the hard sciences. Yeah, it's the art of learning. <laughs> it takes an actual... I wonder if this is it. I wonder if it actually takes the left and the right brain individual who has a good balance, who is also who is creative and holistic and also narrowly focused and technically capable, right? That's the balance that we're trying to strike now. And that's probably why philosophy has died off and why why it's starting to come back out of necessity to restore balance. Yeah, plus, like, you know, especially people who are agnostic and stuff, it's like, you need to ask questions about how to live a good life if you don't have religious background, because I definitely don't. Right. So, it's like, it is important to ask moral and ethical questions, it's important to ask questions about beauty, the nature of reality, the nature of, like, how you know what you know. Right. Like, all these things are fairly important, but, like, we take them for granted all the time. Right. 
So this is, this is why philosophy is important. We need to understand why we think the way that we do and maybe question, well, definitely question our own thinking. You should always be doing that. And that's what philosophy tries to teach you how to do. It's take yourself out of the equation and just look at the world with no biases and without your own like perspective in the way and right. just try to like objectively look at reality. <laughs> and try to get back to first principles or bedrock in the sense that if you have a particular heuristic or tack that you're taking, you can take it to its logical conclusion and then actually get down to truth. Yeah, definitely. By having like logical sound arguments for why you believe what you do. Which is hard. And why though, you believe right? what you believe. Like because you got to keep defining terms. It's this re almost infinitely regressive, or sometimes it seems that way, but... Yeah, and until eventually, well, I don't know. Until you hit the aha moment. That's yeah, how it's been true. for me. It's been this grind. <laughs> Reading Hegel and Kant was like a grind until things start to click, you know, more and more and more. Yeah, I mean, there's there's PhD programs where you just study Hegel or Kant. Like that's you all you, that's all you do for that's all you do for four years. Yeah. Is you just read Hegel or Kant, right. and then you get a PhD for it, like mm -hmm. in philosophy. So that's like a thing. <laughs> like that's how complicated and how much they wrote. Well, I mean, which so, is an insane amount of writing, but they wrote about everything. <laughs> it's immensely useful because of this perspective. Each one of them has their unique perspective and this is why i love modern science and the phd program i don't ever want to come across as anti-science all i say is i think we need more of a balance but that particular way of knowing man it gets shit done yeah and thinking from a different like metaphysical perspective and questioning the nature of reality and stuff i mean look at people like nikola tesla right he had some crazy philosophical views about like the nature of reality and stuff and look at what he invented as a result of it so it's like yeah you know, paradigm shifts can still occur in things like physics because of metaphysics and because of philosophy. <laughs> and they come from those fringe creative people, I would argue, a lot of the times. <laughs> yeah, it's true. Because if something's going to come from outside the box, then clearly it's got to come from someone outside. Or, you know, if the system isn't working, then clearly it may need to come from outside the box. Yeah. There is room for the creative in this whole game. I think philosophy is, is one of those places. Yeah. Uh, and then the last, well, one of the last branches, political philosophy. Everyone oh, knows great. what political philosophy is. <laughs> My favorite. No, we talked about how I was deeply affected by reading Russian authors and reading about what happened in Nazi Germany and um, just geopolitics in general, I find really fascinating. And obviously it trickles down into every aspect of our lives, including philosophy. And some of the great philosophers were political philosophers. So um, I want to embrace this new way of thinking where philosophy or uh, politics isn't a bad word. And um, yeah, it's an important question. I mean, political philosophy, question. just ask, how do we govern ourselves? Like right. that's, that's a fundamentally a pretty important question, I would say, like, and a hard question. It, yeah, because we haven't, hardest, we haven't gotten it right yet, so no. you have to keep asking this question. <laughs> iteration. And I would argue the American system is, is far from perfect, but one of the best iterations we've had, which is why it's had almost worldwide adoption, this democratic capitalist thing we got going on. Yeah, but it's got its problems, too. <laughs> For sure. Yeah, we'll, we'll talk in depth about political yeah, we should philosophy do, later. <laughs> we should do a whole episode on political philosophy. I'd love to 
reread marks and do some note taking and yeah we can break down all the different government types and yeah. all that stuff like yeah <laughs> i do i do have a lot to say about that and i am pro-american pro-socialist pro-democratic with a very balanced conservative liberal divide it's a beautiful divide we have because it provides stability um that's all i'll say about that i guess <laughs> yeah yeah i'm definitely a democratic socialist but i'm just under the view that yeah government should be there to regulate corporations and not be there to regulate people mm. um, and to monopolize violence otherwise shit gets out of hand yeah yeah and there's been way too much emphasis on regulating people as opposed to regulating the corporations that are hurting people so Mm. Yeah, that's, yeah, typical that's, power. That's where my thing's wrong with the government. <laughs> well, I, I feel like this is a perennial, like we talked about, it's bigger than just capitalism. This is a perennial human problem, is the is the um, consolidation of power by the few. Yeah, we'll get into Karl Marx later, though. <laughs> yeah. And neo-Marxist thinking, yeah, which mm. is <laughs> mainly the struggle between those who have and those who don't have. <laughs> yeah, and then our rampant postmodern neo-Marxist leaning, um, which I don't say as a pejorative, by the way. Yeah. I, th I think... I, I think, think it's one of the most fundamental political issues, period. I think Karl Marx was right about a whole lot right. of things, but... We're in a, a, a different sort of tyranny, and I think most people would agree with that. Yeah. All right, yeah, the last last part of... <laughs> Jesus, this did take a while to get through, but these are complicated words, huh? <laughs> these are loaded, loaded, loaded terms. All right, yeah, logic's the last branch of philosophy, and that just deals with how to argue and stuff and how to come Pause. up with... Oh, all right. We might have lost some of that video. That's okay. Good thing we have backups. Yeah, it's not the end of the world. I'll, I'll just cut to those cameras. That's actually a terrible angle, by the way. <laughs> seeing the side of my head. Yeah, whatever. It's okay. Yeah, we're still amateurs at this. <laughs> at least I'm feeling a little more relaxed. Dude, I'm in the flow. I don't know about you. My... All right, logic. Yay, logic. We're back. We're back. Back in action. Logic's the toolbox that you use to uh, understand the world. <laughs> so it, Can we define it? Uh, it's how do we reason. So, yeah, that's pretty much the definition of logic. We should have looked up the entomology. I should have, <laughs> I should have done more, more homework. I mean, logic, I took a whole class on logic in college. It is complicated. There's a whole, you can, you can map any sentence and look at it and be like, okay, or paragraph and be like, okay, are these premises true? Then the conclusion's true. Like you can point out logical fallacies and anything. Then. You could, you could deconstruct like entire text. There's been like a person who deconstructed the entire Bible sentence by sentence, looking for end paragraph by paragraph, using logic, looking for logical fallacies, fucking yeah. crazy shit. That's a fool, Aaron, because <laughs> I'm sure there's many. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So logic is how you make assertions and claims about the nature of reality. So, okay. Yeah. And so then typically, typically it's, you know, if premise A is true and premise B is true, then conclusion C is true. So, <laughs> yeah, that's one example of a logical, you know, argument. <laughs> mm. Yeah. And so that's, that's one, what is that one called? Uh, that's called deductive reasoning. Okay, so then there's different 
types of logic. Yeah, I mean, and the, these are the really basic ones is deductive reasoning, inductive reasoning, and abductive reasoning. Um, but yeah, with deductive reasoning, it's like the premises are true and the conclusion is true. <laughs> and there's so many examples of that I could give. But Which let's do a basic. Can... Let's do a basic one. I smoke weed every day. <laughs> is premise one. Premise two is uh, if you smoke weed every day, you're a pothead. <laughs> the conclusion is I am a pothead. <laughs> yeah, but that that was false premises. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And if some of them are false premises, then that <laughs> then it's not a valid statement. <laughs> so that it to me speaks to an inherent weakness in that logical structure because it's nearly impossible to prove that your premises are, in fact, true. Yeah, but this, this goes Which down is, to the difference between knowledge and beliefs. Oh, well, that's... What do you mean? Uh, there's a big difference between knowledge and beliefs. Oh, beliefs totally are something that you, that you think you know, and knowledge is something that you can prove. I would argue that beliefs are what you act out. Well, no, beliefs are just your assertion about something, but knowledge, well, knowledge how... is, is backing up your assertion. So, yeah. Right, I see what you're saying. Yeah. Belief, belief is like the projection in your head. Here, I have... I, let, me, let me flip through some notes here. <laughs> but, oh, yeah. Knowledge is a justified true belief. <laughs> so, yeah. In order right. to have no, knowledge about something, you hold a belief, and then you, you justify it via... Pause. <laughs> okay. <laughs> oh, it's under the table. good all right so knowledge yeah right so knowledge is is a justified true belief that's like the you know philosophical definition of what knowledge is mm. so you know you can hold a belief or whatever but you need to justify it with a bunch of like evidence to back it up and then that claim is true so right yeah so that is taking the propositional and manifesting it in reality by doing in the real world yeah and experiencing and then being able to repeat, repeat with experiments yeah and be right. like okay mm -hmm. this apple's red every time <laughs> or whatever so again <laughs> back to my neuro neurological argument here you're taking the particular and then you're integrating yeah yeah definitely mm -hmm. and it's this logical process is doing that over and over and over again yeah yeah, plus we need some way to, like, you know, ground claims in reality or whatever. So, like, deductive right. reasoning is actually the most straightforward version of reasoning that we have because it's like, okay, if you can prove that both of the premises are true and that they're connected to the conclusion, then, like, the conclusion is true. So it's like for, you know, things like basic physics problems and stuff, it's like 
you know, this is how we're able to make assertions about the future and stuff. Yeah, and send people <laughs> to the moon. Yeah, and send people to the moon and do all kind of design micro, you know, microchips and yeah. all the crazy stuff that we've ever made, all the stuff we're recording this on. Like, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, all of that was using tons of deductive reasoning and experimentation to advance technology and, and knowledge it, and human knowledge. <laughs> and so, what then what's inductive? Inductive reasoning is using past experience to predict future behavior. So that's like probabilistic analysis. So, so yeah. <laughs> Past experience to predict future behavior. Yeah. So, so again, that would again be like a physics problem. But so rather than it being in your head first, it starts with the data first. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it starts with past experience first to draw conclusions about the future. Oh, no. So it doesn't start with data. So this is all inductive. This is in your head. It's... um it's kind of what I'm speaking to. It's that intuitive kind of, right? Or am I understanding this wrong? Well, it's using just past, like I said, past experience to predict future behavior. So it's like... Yeah, so if you if you bring up some example of something to me and I've had past experience of it, I kind of link together all of those disparate associations in my brain and then I come up with an inclusion, uh, a conclusion well, here, let based, me, based on that structure of reasoning. Let me, let me give you a good A, B, C premise conclusion example with inductive reasoning. So it's like, uh, okay, uh, I slept, premise A, I slept with a hooker in Mexico two weeks ago. Premise B, I now have herpes. And then the conclusion is the, the hooker gave me herpes. <laughs> That's using inductive reasoning. <laughs> right. You're making an assertion about what happened based on past experience. And your past experience is that if you sleep with a prostitute and don't use protection, there's a good chance you'll get an STD. So you did that thing, and now you have an STD. So you can come to the conclusion that it was the hooker that gave you the STD. Okay. Now, so you really confused me with your example. But now I'm, like, in Thailand with some dark, shady alley. But anyways. Well, I wanted to make it funny. <laughs> Back to reality. <laughs> but but yeah, that's using inductive reasoning. Again, these are like all all logical arguments like this. You can map them out when you write them out. It's just like doing math, but for sentences. It's kind of... Yeah. That's, that's basically how you break logic down. And then you just look at every single paragraph and be like, okay, do all of these assertions, are they true? Are they false? Are they making false? You know, do the premises not match the conclusion? All that jazz. Yeah, what I realized by learning about these structures is that uh it's literally the way we all think and it's why we think the way we think yeah and to a certain extent these philosophers are kind of pushing it forward and creating new structures or at least elucidating what's already there yeah we use these forms of reasoning yeah all, we use all them day, we use them every day, day all day with every single it's decision not, that you make like, it's not really particular to philosophers that was that was a big breakthrough for me was just how kind of germane and everyday it can be. Once you understand how it works, it's quite complicated to get to the point where you understand how it works. Yeah. Here, is... we'll, we'll do another one with deductive reasoning. It's like, it's like uh, I showed up late for work today. You know, my boss will fire me if I show up late to work. And then conclusion, my boss fired me or whatever. Like, yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's like very straightforward deductive reasoning. Mm -hmm. Now the inductive version of that would be like, 
I showed up late, or I'm going to show up late to work today. It's like, that's premise one or whatever. And then premise two is my boss told me that if I showed up late to work again, he, he might fire me. And then conclusion is like, my boss might fire me. <laughs> again, yeah. So it's, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's first person in, in your head kind of projecting. Yeah, I guess That's that wasn't the inductive. best example. I should have given even better examples. Yeah, I, I think, I think, I follow, and that means that I, probably most of our audience follows. And I'm sorry, guys, we're terrible at this. But <laughs> honestly, I'm quite bored with these terms, but I think it's important to get them out. Yeah, we're once we discuss all the terms, then we'll get into like. We'll be less in the weeds in the future. <laughs> yeah, and these terms. At least are... that's kind of my hope. <laughs> yes, I, I I would hope as we go, we similar to the scientific method, we get a narrower and narrower focus, which requires more, better and better understanding of the terms, and um, and how they relate to each other. And the best way to do that is just to keep going over it. We're just. We're circling around what's really going on there. Yeah, it's true. Well, and because this is a podcast on trying to understand, like, the philosophy of philosophy, it's like, it's trying to understand the way that we think and the way that we draw conclusions and the way that we go about, like, understanding the world. <laughs> yeah. And participate in the process in real time. Yeah. So we're in the process of gaining more understanding about the world. Yes. <laughs> but, it's the only, but only... these terms are complicated. I mean, when you really start breaking concepts down to their like most fundamental component parts, like th things get way more complicated. Mm -hmm. <laughs> like that's just intrinsically how it goes. Like, yeah, some of our words and terms are so loaded that like, we don't, we just take it for granted it's, in the English language, but like, it's a very messy <laughs> system of definition language yeah it's true i mean especially when you have terms that you aren't using all the time in daily like speech or philosophy <laughs> in different languages that's a huge problem <laughs> yeah exactly like not exactly the same words in english as german yeah or ancient greek like it's all a sure yeah translation <laughs> into english and then they they miss stuff or stuff gets hard to interpret english isn't a very complete language either it's like a trade language, so it kind of lacks depth. I mean, <laughs> yeah, it really does. Yeah, so there's like stuff we don't have words for in the English language that they do in like German and, and they I, do well, in honestly, part of other languages. Part of what I hope we can do if this blossoms, let's say, is come up with new terms, right? <laughs> That's kind of how you how you push it forward. Think about it. Did existentialism exist before? No, that it wasn't even a term. Yeah. So you you invent words and you invent terms and flesh them out, only if it's justified. Yeah. I think it'll come quite naturally if it does. Yeah. And most likely we'll realize that someone else smarter than us thought of it first. <laughs> yeah, totally. <laughs> cool. Um, progress. What's next? <laughs> oh, abductive reasoning is like the final kind of reasoning. Abductive. Yeah, and that one you just eliminate impossible conclusions until only the possible conclusion remains so it's just like process of elimination type thinking of course how you yeah. find your keys yeah exactly you just search everywhere <laughs> until eventually you find those fuckers <laughs> yeah, it's always in the last place you look yeah because then you stop looking it's very <laughs> obvious why would you keep looking if you found them like th of course like duh <laughs> mm -hmm. 
but yes, that's that's process of elimination type thinking. Which so, is deductive uh, reasoning. So deductive reasoning is you know, you can prove the premises are true and the conclusions true. It's very straightforward. <laughs> uh, inductive reasoning: you're making an assertion about the future based on past experience. And then abductive reasoning: you're making an assertion by eliminating all the other possible conclusions. So Arkham's razor. Yeah, so those are like the three main types of like argument. Actually, not really Arkham's. I mean, there's way more than that when you get down to like like pure logical arguments and stuff. But like that's just like kind of a brief overview. Mm. Um. Yeah. What else do we want to cover here? <laughs> so yeah, why philosophy? <laughs> yeah, for you. Why do you like philosophy, Roy? <laughs> oh God, that's a loaded question. Yeah, I know. <laughs> um, I suppose I got to go back to the beginning, but sometime in my late adolescence, I became obsessed with knowing things knowing about the universe. So I read lots of books on physics and cosmology. And um, somewhere along the line, I realized that there is a system of thought and there's this whole kind of mirror and lens that we look through. And part of that is psychology and part of that is philosophy. And I've always been interested in big questions. I prefer meta conversation as opposed to narrow conversation. And so I just dove deep. I went to the thrift store and I found all these classic books on all the greats. It was like texts on Spinoza and Kant and Hegel. And like, I got like 13 of these books and just brought them home. And I didn't read all of them. You know, it's pretty dense stuff. Yeah. But that's really what sparked it for me. And then um, back when we were growing out in Dexter, I, I dove really, really deep with podcasts and audiobooks. I would just work in the field all day <clears throat> and really dig deep into philosophy. And I, somewhere around there, I, I started making progress. And it wasn't just reading it for the sake of reading it. I was really starting to understand it. And those aha moments it was so addicting and wonderful. And I really just started chasing that whole cloth for a long time. And it coincided with my spiritual awakening and my psychological development, a la Jordan Peterson. So all these things kind of coalesced into a very powerful transformation. And philosophy was absolutely a part of that. And I've always wanted to be a part of it. That's why I'm so thrilled to do this podcast because one of my dreams is really absolutely to to at least participate. And that's what I think philosophy is. I think it's happening right now. It's the participation with ideas and the active platonic dialogue of hashing out things and disagreeing or agreeing yeah. and working through ideas. And, and then I see a general wholesale sickness that has to do around a meaning crisis and clearly philosophy has a role to play in that. I think we need a resurgence of Neoplatonism and, and Stoicism and, and hard rigor around how you think and how you act. There's discipline there, you know? Yeah. And that part of that discipline is, is philosophy. 
but there's also this beautiful again it's in the word wisdom and 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 um love i mean there's this like beautiful flowering um aspect to philosophy that i really enjoy it's super similar to my spiritual development there's like this unfolding where things fit together more and more and it just grows and grows and grows and that's really really beautiful yeah definitely so what about you oh god (laughs) this story's gonna get brutal (laughs) i got into philosophy when i was 20 because i needed some answers about tough questions in life so wait you when did you start your undergraduate degree in philosophy you were 20 uh, well, I switched majors probably when I was 21, but when I was 20, half my family was killed in a plane crash, so both my sisters and my dad died in one day, and I had a crisis of meaning, for sure, a very, very real slap-in-the-face crisis of meaning. So I was originally going to school for psychology, and after that, yeah, I took one existentialism class after my family died in it opened my eyes to philosophy and I was never religious growing up so so it gave some answers and stuff and at least gave me some solace in a really 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 difficult time in my life so it was extremely helpful yeah existentialism did you (laughs) that's what got me into it really hard did you have a philosophical leaning before that I mean no not particularly I was very you're athletic yeah. You're into wrestling and stuff? Yeah, I was into wrestling always. But as far as like a general philosophical view on life, I didn't really have one necessarily at that Interesting. point. Interesting. Yeah, because I wasn't religious growing up. I didn't have that kind of background. Yeah. Like I was just like very, very materialistic view of the world, I guess. I just thought everything was just, you know, brutal causality and there was just no meaning to anything. It was a pretty nihilistic view of the world, actually. Like yeah. there's just nothing happens after death. Like it's just just randomness happening and that's it so (laughs) sure but you know after studying lots well after existentialism and stuff and reading some beautiful existentialist writings and stuff especially about things like you know suffering and loss and things like that it uh it helped quite a bit and like I said gave me quite a bit of solace and then I just pursued it really hard and just kept taking more and more philosophy classes and then just I loved it like I loved doing the coursework I loved like the discussion sections it was just yeah those aha moments are amazing Mm. it's such dense reading though it's so difficult so we're gonna get a lot of this stuff super wrong (laughs) like I guarantee I'm gonna get a lot of this stuff wrong a lot of the time but that's okay we're taking (laughs) a brief pass overview very cursory very uh, shallow overview. Yeah, like extremely complicated topics. <laughs> it's got to go deeper, and I'm sure it will. Yeah, we'll, we'll cover it surface level and then start getting deeper, I guess. So I just wanted to comment, because it was almost like philosophy was forced upon you. Yeah, almost to a certain extent. Like, I just needed answers really badly about life and death. So I, I wanted to read what every single person had basically written about life and death and and i just meaning. want to comment <laughs> do you know what other philosopher was greatly traumatized which led to arguably creative genius uh, i don't know a whole bunch of them yeah like but, most of them <laughs> yeah, but, but nietzsche in particular you know so yeah i was gonna say nietzsche he struggled perhaps more than anybody so 
Um, I think it speaks to the utilitarian aspect of philosophy. I, and the, again, I, in the beginning, I thought, are they just arguing for the sake of argument? Is this just verbal wordplay? But no, it is very useful. Yeah, they're thought exercises. It's supposed to flex your brain muscle. Well, no, I mean, I just mean in the application to because you you derive some solace on how to deal with your tragedy. Yeah, this definitely. Is, this is directly useful. Yeah, because you just it's can't just, avoid tragedy. So <laughs> this is not just for um for people in the ivory tower. I really think we need everyday philosophers. Yeah, yeah. We do. Plus, yeah, it just gave me a lot of solace. I mean, eventually my philosophical views were kind of combined with, you know, like Newtonian physics and stuff, because it's just like, and kind of some Eastern beliefs too, because I think the Hindus at least got it right with like reincarnation and stuff, at least as far as like Newtonian physics goes, because you can't create or destroy matter or yeah, energy. And we're all they, made of matter and energy, so can't create or destroy right. us, right? Yeah, they got that right well before them. <laughs> yeah, so that's at least my philosophical view as it stands. I mean, that we're all just, you know, 13 billion year old stardust. Yeah. And. And that's that's it. That that lines up with what we know about the physical reality of the world. So. And it's causal, right? I mean, the Big Bang happened, and literally everything that's happening right now is the result of that. Yeah. So um, there's there's this inevitability to the whole thing that's kind of brutal, but tr also true. Yeah, but I don't know. The fact that you can't create or destroy matter or energy, I think that should give some people some solace, right? Oh, definitely. I mean, right? Like, that... Yeah. Just that one fundamental part of reality, I mean, it's like, okay, that means that we've been here forever. It almost makes death way less of a, of just a scary thing. <laughs> yeah, well, you're not afraid of not being anything for eternity before you're born. So why are you scared of not being anything for eternity after you're born? Exactly. And these are the important <laughs> philosophical questions to ask. <laughs> yeah, I'm a big fan of the memento mori. I'm a big fan of reminding ourselves that life is precious and short and that we all are going to die. And that isn't depressing and dark. That is real and rational yep. and useful because then you can really enjoy and take advantage. You know, when I thought... Do I want to make the trip out here to podcast today? Part of that rationale behind it was life is fleeting. And what do you want to do? And if there's any resistance, get over it and do the thing that you want to do. Podcasting is definitely one of those things. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I'm enjoying it immensely. <laughs> yeah, my brain tingles. It's really fun. I gotta get through the nerves and stuff. Just hopefully the content matter isn't too boring, but I don't know. We gotta lay out some kind of like framework for how we view reality, especially if we're gonna have like a philosophy channel. Yeah. Like, yeah, you, you need that. So hopefully these terms are a little bit less scary after this. <laughs> yeah, that, that process of defining terms is really important, and we're gonna have to do that constantly. I'm actually really fascinated by the meaning of words, and I, I think that's part of the reason why, because it really helps you understand these deep, complex ideas if you actually understand where the words come from. It gives you so much insight. And a lot of times the words are way deeper than you realize. Like religion meaning togetherness. Who would have thought that? No one ever knew that, you know? Yeah. So it, it changes the perspective of terms. Yeah, especially metaphysical terms. I mean, they're very, very loaded. Yeah. <laughs> like, and, like... and philosophers disagree, so the, 
about what the terms mean, so you have to define that beforehand. And then I'm hoping that people in the comments will like correct us, and then we can get this kind of uh, communal dialogue going as well. Yes, all the <laughs> philosophy <laughs> students that are watching that are way smarter than yeah, us, yeah. correct us, please. Uh, I'm sure <laughs> they will. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Although, I'm, I'm trying really hard. <laughs> um, so, yeah. Yeah, I think just hearing all of the different arguments for... For, yeah, life and death was really, really helpful to me. It got me through definitely the roughest time in my life. And, and yeah, I love philosophy. <laughs> it's good stuff. It's definitely mental gymnastics. Mm. Most of the time, yeah. Yeah. And sometimes it just feels like mental masturbation, but that's okay. <laughs> yeah, I mean, <coughs> there is a creative play element to it, because if you're playing music, for instance, are you not getting something done? Of course you are. Um, but there has to be this kind of free association period. And I do think that that's part of where the joy comes in with philosophy, um, where you kind of put down the dry analytical stuff and either have a good conversation <laughs> or just take a walk in the woods and think about it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Those have been some of my biggest revelations have been in the woods after, you know, reading some philosophy podcast or text. <laughs> Yeah, and to all the people listening, you should also be like doing some push-ups or something right now <laughs> while listening to this. <laughs> I'm sure. Yeah, Work out. <laughs> we'll have it on video and audio, so a lot of people, if they listen on audio, that's certainly how I do it. <laughs> while listening to this, either be working out or cleaning, one or the other. <laughs> or just sitting and listening, that's also good. <laughs> no, do some push-ups. <laughs> <laughs> do you have any any other notes? or? Um about philosophy i mean no not too much i think we got most of it yeah the main point of philosophy just to drive it home is to remove yourself from experience to objectively view the world i would argue the other side of that is to participate in the action yeah but by that you I mean are you are a part of the world yeah, but that I mean just to, like, analyze the world without your own, like, perspective and bias getting in the way. I mean, this is especially true of things like yeah. the scientific method, where it's like you need to totally, you know, ditch your biases or try to if you're trying to, like, no, discover don't. new information. You can't ditch your biases, but you can become aware of them. Yeah, well, and just try to try to look at the world more analytically. <laughs> right. Yeah, and critically. But you realize the, the fundamental paradox of a, of a subject trying to view the world as an object. Yeah. We exist interrelationally. We don't exist in a vacuum, isolated. Yeah, exactly. Right. Yeah, you're always going to have your <laughs> sense perception that ties you into this world and then your memory of it that you know creates all these preconceived notions about reality and stuff. But again, this is why it's so important with philosophy to like, you know, state what your view of reality is before you start making arguments. <laughs> right. Yeah. And progress can be made. <laughs> yes. Look at how much progress we've made. We're living like kings right now. <laughs> yeah. Yeah.
Better than Kings, probably. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> For the most part. Cool. Well, do you want to keep going, or do you want to wrap it up, or what do you think? Um. Because I know you you want to. We could go into the history and touch on some of the greats and stuff. I uh, will just touch on something that you know Plato said about you know argument and how to find truth and stuff, which was related to his view of the soul, which is the tripartite soul. So he thought, you know, your your soul consisted of a logical part, an emotional part, and then like a animalistic, like physical desire type part. So yeah, I had those decided to the rational, the spirited, and the appetitive soul. Mm. And he's saying that if you want to like argue any point, you need to be operating off of the rational or logical side and ditch your emotions and then ditch your appetitive soul. So right. to make good arguments Try to well, not let emotions get in the way. Right. That's that's a very <laughs> good point with philosophy. That's what you should definitely also try to do with philosophy, mm. which is why you should try to ditch your preconceived notions about stuff because, you know, somebody presents a different argument to some belief that you hold or whatever, and then you get all angry and you won't hear them out. It's not, it's not yeah. productive. But, yeah, we're wired to do that to a certain degree, to uh, take stances and hold them fervently. Yeah, which is which is what we're trying to like get people to not do. <laughs> right. Yeah, that's what we would encourage people to do is hear people out if they have a different opinion than you. Yeah, especially about things that are like metaphysical concepts. Like Yeah, hold things tightly, let go lightly. Yeah. It's okay to delve deep, but realize that there's way more to the story. Be humble. Rationally humble. Yeah, and curious. Be more curious about mm, curiosity reality. is a huge, huge part of it. I would argue all the great philosophers were intensely curious. Yeah, yeah. They just kept asking questions until they couldn't get any more answers, basically, and then boom, start trying to answer those unanswerable questions. It's actually, I think, a key to a lot of psychological suffering is curiosity. Yeah. If you have perseverance, if you have pain, if you have something bothering you, or if you're trying to meditate, if simply becoming curious of the phenomenon completely changes this perspective. It pushes you forward, I think. Yeah, totally. If we're dealing with suffering and stuff, especially right. psychological suffering, yeah, curiosity is incredibly important. <laughs> yeah, it changes the framing from perhaps victim mentality to... Uh, um, being able to do it, you know, to being um, an individual able to take care of the problem. It, it, it engages the motivational system, basically. Yeah. yeah. So just curiosity, good thing. <laughs> yeah, it might have killed cats, but it, it progressed human society forward. <laughs> right, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, always be curious. And don't just dismiss people's viewpoints just because you hold certain beliefs that may or may not be true. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Know that you don't know. <laughs> yeah, know that you know nothing. That is that is the key to really good philosophy, or to be a really good philosopher, is just act under the assumption that you know nothing. <laughs> well, yeah. Truth uh, can be known, but there's a good chance that you don't know the whole picture because it's too complex. Yeah.
Yeah, definitely. It's very, very complex. So you have all these shades of gray and all these ex- exceptions. Yeah. To a certain degree, I think that's what the philosophers are trying to iron out. They're trying to provide more structure to that um, so it's less ambiguous. Yeah. But to a certain extent, it's trying to put God into a box, which is hilarious. Um, but it's still fundamentally necessary. Yeah. You got to exist in it, be in it, and then you also have to work with it. There's a healthy balance there. Yeah, I guess we could end with like the Plato's cave allegory. Hmm. <coughs> which is definitely about discovering the true nature of reality. Right. So the idea is you're in a cave and there's a wall behind you and there's a fire in the cave which projects shadows onto a wall that you can see. You can't see behind the wall behind you. That's where the real world is. All you see is the wall with the shadows. So the whole point for me at least is that is fundamentally what we experience. We experience the shadows on the wall. And um, it it's a representation of what's there because the shadow gives you the rough outline of the form of the thing. But it's clearly not the whole picture. Yeah. Right? Yeah, he's talking about the appearance of reality versus actual reality. Right. So the yeah. shadows on the wall are the appearance. It's what, it's what reality appears like. But actual reality would be getting up and stepping outside of the cave and going into the light and seeing the 3D world for what it actually is. Yeah. So his thing with philosophy is that as philosophers, we're trying to go from the darkness of the cave into the light mm. and, and discover the true nature of reality. Yeah, I mean... I- the way I, I'm pretty sure I'm right on this, too, is that he actually thinks that we're all just, that's the fundamental condition we're in. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And you can never know the true nature right. of reality. Yeah, okay. Like, yeah, because our... our because yeah. of our keyhole. Yeah, because sure. fundamentally, <clears throat> yeah, the other analogy is like, yeah, you're looking through a keyhole, yeah. you know, in a door or whatever, and you can just see this tiny little frame of the room, but you can't see the whole room. And that's like our our perception of reality because we are limited by sense perception you know we only have these five senses that hold us to this reality and and that's it and they can be flawed they can be tricked and <laughs> yeah but so again it's not that truth can't be known it's just epistemic humility yeah the whole way that we can be wrong like yeah. that's that's the main point yeah. <laughs> we can be wrong about anything <laughs> and i think there's power in holding as particularly your hardest set uh, beliefs or knowledge, there's power in holding that stuff lightly, right? It's incredibly hard to do. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I know there's definitely been periods in my life where I was like hell bent on like, right. no, I need to be right. I need to be yeah. right. I need to be right. But as I'm getting older, it's just like, yeah. nah, dude. Like, <laughs> it's a really bad look first off because it just makes you look like a douchebag who right. like knows it all and talks over people. And yeah, it's just not a good look. So. So, yeah, listening more to people and right. and not obsessively needing to be correct all the time is definitely good. And then you learn more, you know, you'll hear other people's perspectives, especially then, when it comes to things like political issues. Like you, you really should be listening to both sides of arguments. They'll, <laughs> they'll either confirm or deny your, your beliefs, you know? Yeah. It's not like it's going to hurt you. If, yeah. if it, if yeah, it, exactly. What's it gonna, it, it's not going to hurt you. It's just an idea. It's not, yeah. An idea ain't going to hurt you. <laughs> you'll know, you'll know if, if you don't believe it, and that's okay. But perhaps 
you'll budge. I've seen it happen and I've experienced it in real time where people have explained, let's say, ideas that I'm averse to and then I feel myself shift, shift a little bit, you know, and I'm like, ah, oh, I don't want to admit it, but they're right a little bit. And, <laughs> and you just go like, click, or a little notch. Yeah. And the more clicks you have, you know, the more well-rounded you are. Yeah, or when you hear people rambling off conspiracy theories and your immediate one is just be like, no, you're, you're goddamn right? wrong. No, but... that's a very good example of how you should be open-minded. Yeah, exactly. Like, the, maybe that's... there is a shred of truth to it. Like maybe, Or maybe it'll just change your perspective on the world a little bit. And like if even, if they are, even if they are wrong. Or maybe it'll prove, you, you'll look it up and then disprove them and then you'll yes. gain more knowledge yes. from that. Like there's... There's good reasons to listen to the other side of an argument, even if it's just to disprove it, because then you'll right. gain more knowledge. Like, Well, I think if you seek out to disprove, if you set out to disprove it, they'll catch on to that and be really averse to it. But if you don't, if you aren't open-minded, you shut down the conversation. So there's no chance of dialogue in the first place. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So what I learned is listen and then try to find common ground, you know, like for instance, the, the, the moon thing. And mm-hmm. then they were like, you know, oh, I think we've we've gone to orbit. We just haven't gone to the moon. So then it's like, oh, let's talk about that. <laughs> and that you then you can find an entry point, and you can expand their knowledge. And then what they realize is, oh, this guy actually knows a lot about rocket science and space flight. Perhaps I should listen to him. And that that wouldn't have never happened if I was just like, no, you're full of crap. Yeah. You know. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, and even with things as like ridiculous as like flat earthers, like. Right? You know, open it, up the dialogue. Let yeah, the idea, let, let them let, let them the sh- ideas speak for themselves. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like yeah. let them talk to astrophysicists, and then maybe like everyone will learn something. Like yeah. you know, even just through the dialogue of that, I bet you'll learn a bunch about like you know, <laughs> about the way that our universe works and yeah. the solar system works. <laughs> yeah, it's it's all a process, and it it's fundamentally tied to communication and dialogue. All right, our camera went out again. <laughs> I think we should wrap it up. All right. Yeah, let's wrap it up. It was a good episode. Yeah. Uh, leave comments and stuff and like and subscribe. I yeah, feel, I feel like, obliged to say that. <laughs> like, subscribe, and share. Because that's not how you're supposed to say these things. Yeah, that thing. But yeah, hopefully yeah. everyone enjoyed it. <laughs> Till next time. <laughs>